I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. Over the past three years, I've been lucky enough to cover a lot of topics on this podcast. But truth be told, one of the areas I've always found particularly challenging is impact investing. I know that might sound strange, but it's because I've tended to think of impact, at least in its truest additional form, as this almost sacrosanct space, the epitome of what I imagine we're all trying to work towards in sustainable finance. It's meant that I've continually wondered where and how I should enter it. Should it be about frameworks like the SDGs? or organizations like the United Nations? Should it focus on academic work or investors? Or the fact that approaches to impact itself are increasingly, and even controversially, expanding into other asset classes and strategies? It's why I find this episode so compelling. Because it not only draws out the formal roots of what we now call impact investing, but it comes from the experience of one of the largest development finance institutions who also happens to be the oldest impact investor. Which means we talk about what differentiates DFIs as impact investors, namely their ability to absorb risk and their willingness to be truly additional in ways that markets aren't able to be. We also discuss how the CDC group is positioning itself as the UK's green development finance institution, what DFIs are doing to provide much needed liquidity and capital during the pandemic, and why investor action on climate and the SDGs is vital to advance the development agenda. And that's where my next guest, Nick O'Donohoe, comes in. Nick is CEO of CDC Group. He's been a senior advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and both co-founded and served as CEO of Big Society Capital. Prior to that, he spent time at J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. CDC Group, which was established in 1948, is the UK's development finance institution with a portfolio of roughly £5 billion, making it the world's first impact investor supporting businesses in Africa and South Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Nick O'Donohoe. It's great to have you here and thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Jason. Great to join you. Fantastic. Great. So look, Nick, there is a lot to talk about today, but before we get there, let's start out with the arc of your career. As, as I read it, it's taken you from more of a conventional finance background to making a sudden turn where you co-founded Big Society Capital, advised the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and are now leading the UK's development finance efforts. And I'd really like to explore what precipitated all that change and whether it was personally or professionally motivated. I guess kids today would would kind of call it a kind of wokeness. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, as you, as you said, Jason, I had a pretty conventional sort of investment banking career with uh, Goldman Sachs initially, and then uh, uh, lastly with JP Morgan. But I suppose what really sort of the inflection point in my career, if you like, was about 2007, 2008. And at that time, uh, JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, the chief executive of, of JP Morgan, decided, along with a lady called Christina Leyen Hoover, that they wanted to start what they called a social sector finance group. And uh, that was a group that was being set up explicitly 
and arguably certainly before its time to really try to explore ways in which capital could be used for the broader benefit of the broader sort of global community. And uh, I was uh, asked at that time to, to supervise that group as to sort of spend a small part, five, 10% of my time taking responsibility for it. And, and that's what really introduced me to the world of what at the time we called it social sector finance and subsequently became impact investment. I was lucky enough to participate in one of the meetings of the Rockefeller Foundation organized in Bellagio around 2000 and the end of 2007, beginning 2008, which really actually sort of originated the name Impact Investment. And I thought the timing was pretty good because I'd been in investment banking for sort of 26, 27 years. So I, I guess I was getting a little bit tired at that point. But it was also, I think I felt strongly, remember, if you go back to that period, we were just in the middle of the global financial crisis. And there was a sense that the zeitgeist was changing. There was a sense that there was a much greater recognition among the broader public of the importance of financial markets and the financial system. And there was a, equally a sense that the financial system wasn't delivering for society. And the obvious challenges of climate and inequality just weren't being dealt with. So there was a feeling that something had to change. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be there at the beginning of that. So that's what introduced me to the world of impact investment. And then we obviously did some interesting work at JP Morgan through the social finance group, including writing a report in, on impact investment in 2010, you know, highlighting it as sort of an emerging asset class, which is really, I suppose, the first time that a major institution had really looked at impact investment. And sort of one thing led to another. I was introduced to Sir Ronald Cohen around that time. And Ronnie's been one of the great sort of fa founder, father figures, if you like, of the impact investment movement. And then together we got this opportunity to go and uh, start uh, what became known as Big Society Capital. So from that inflection point in 2007, 2008, as you say, it really did materially change the arc of my career. The impact report that JP Morgan in 2010 is particularly interesting. I'd even call it seminal in the sense that back then you estimated the size by 2020 of the impact market of between 400 billion to as much as 1 trillion. It was a pretty radical idea, as I understand it, and surprisingly incredibly accurate. And by that, I mean, we're now seeing figures you know, from Jin at, at uh, 715 billion to as much as 2.1 trillion from the IFC. I guess I'm wondering, and I'd like to feed into your latest article that talks about this. What's your outlook for the next decade around impact? Well, it's interesting that, that you say that the headline forecasts in that 2010 report were accurate. I mean, at the time when we published it, it was considered to be almost uh, laughable that uh, this asset class or this way of method of investing could emerge and that it would be so uh, consequential. Nobody at the time really had heard of impact investment. So it is uh, looking back in it now, and as you know, we, we together with um, Yasmin Lamy and Christina, we recently published sort of a, a follow-up in the, in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, looking at what perhaps the next 10 years might hold. I mean, I'd say, first of all, that the last 10 years have the growth has been really extraordinary. The growth, not only of assets, which has obviously been important as you reference, but just a growth in the brand and the recognition that there is, you know, that when we think about that sort of investment is the lifeblood of capitalism. And we need to think about it has profound impacts on the world we live in, on what's built and what jobs are created and so on. So we need to, when we think about how we allocate capital, we cannot just allocate, think about allocating it on a risk return basis. We've got to think more broadly than that. And we've got to factor in impact. So that idea has really taken root and has become mainstream now. 
So I think as you look into the next 10 years, what that means is a lot more opportunities, the need for a lot more opportunities to commit capital to impact investment, but also I think a much broader spectrum of opportunities. And when we um, published, Yasmin and, and Christine and I, when we published this article a couple of weeks ago, we really focused on three key issues. I mean, one was the opportunity to address the question of, of diversity and equity and inclusion. And one of the really striking things about the last couple of years, when you look at issues like gender imbalance or Black Lives Matter, what you see is, whereas before, I think our response society's response to that would have been very much grounded in government intervention of some sort. That's still an important part, obviously, of our response. But what is becoming also important alongside that is an investment response. So you've seen some of the large banks in the United States, for example, dedicate large pools of money to invest in Black-owned businesses. You've seen a huge rise in gender finance, so investment in businesses that benefit women over the last, uh, and in, indeed, I think since 2017, we had about a billion dollars in specific what we call gender lens investing. Now, in the last year, that's been close to $5 billion. So we're seeing an enormous increase, a big increase in the CDFI community in the United States and the way it's funded and a lot more capital going into that area. So we're addressing... The opportunity is much more obvious now that by directing capital, we can address key issues of diversity and equity and inclusion in society. So that's the first big area. I mean, the second big area, obviously, it will come as no surprise to people to hear is around climate and the climate emergency. And uh, obviously, capital has played a significant role over the last decade or more in helping to develop much larger scale wind and solar facilities. And that will continue to be. I mean, we still have an enormous need for renewable energy worldwide over the net, really from now till 2050 and beyond. But what's, I think, the role, the specific role that impact investment can play is continuing to support that, what we call climate mitigation and developing wind, solar and so on. But I think in addition to that, perhaps strike out into a little bit more of the of the more difficult areas, more challenging areas, more nascent areas. And so examples of that, for example, would be adaptation and resilience. We know we're going to have an increase in global temperatures. We know that the people that are going to be most affected are the most vulnerable. We know that many, many of them live in emerging markets. So we need to address that through adaptation and resilience. So that's an area that the CDC, for example, is playing a very significant role in. So every time we make an investment, thinking about how you can how how you can adapt it and make ensure, ensure it's resilient. And then we also need to ensure we have what we call a just transition. There will be an enormous change as a result of the greening of the economy. Many jobs will be created, many jobs will be lost. So we need to make sure that we're skilling people and training people for the new jobs. And at the same time, making sure that we recognize that in certain areas, there will be job losses that we need to create new businesses there. So that's all part of the sort of reacting to the climate emergency. And then on top of that, you've got a whole more sort of technology-led response. So areas like carbon sequestration, for example, will be critical. Um, hydrogen, green hydrogen will be critical. Battery technology will be critical. And all of these areas, if they're going to develop, they need massive amounts of, of capital, both to fund research and development, but also to scale new and emerging businesses so that they can respond to them. So that, that whole climate area is going to be critically important. And then the third area we identified in, the, in, in our most recent piece was around transparency and measurement. You know, we do run the risk with impact investment becoming such a popular term 
and and I think sought after by um, the sort of investment community that you run the risk of what we call sort of greenwashing. And so having real transparency and measurement systems, the things like the operating principles for impact measurement, which the IFC developed, things like TCFD, for example, to measure climate, those will be a critical part of the future, the next decade in impact investment. Got it. I want to come back to some of the elements in that article a little bit later, but it's a really good point around, you know, the definition of impact and the popularization of it. And I'm wondering how you see the sustainable development goals transforming the notion of impact, which has sort of traditionally been anchored around the notion of intentionality and particularly additionality. You're starting to see a big push into public equities and public credit. And it almost feels like there's a pragmatic emphasis on measurability, for instance, over the notion of additionality, just given some of the inherent constraints within those asset classes. Do you see a risk in this kind of rainbow or greenwashing as investors, I I think, more broadly, increasingly adopt the SDGs as an impact investment framework? Yeah, I think, look, I think the first thing I'd say is that the SDGs have been, when you look at the various milestones that have led to the growth of impact investment over the last decade or so, the launch of the SDGs was a critical milestone, although it might have seemed obvious at the time, because what the SDGs did was give a framework to an activity that up to that point was sort of rather poorly defined and somewhat nebulous. So the SDGs gave this important framework and it allowed impact investors to be much clearer about where they positioned themselves and what they were trying to do. I think this question of measurability and additionality is a very important one. I suppose measurability is fundamental. If you're going to claim to be an impact investor of any sort, whether it's in public equity or private equity, to some degree, you need to be able to measure, report, monitor, and report on your impact. And I think that's an area which has obviously got a huge amount of attention over the last decade or so. And I think we still are rather fragmented, frankly, in our approach to impact measurement, but there is clearly a movement now towards much more harmonization. There's also a movement within I mean, obviously, measurability depends on getting good data. And when I say good data, I mean sort of independent audited audited data, not sort of self-reporting from companies and so on. And there's clearly a significant move towards that among many of the regulators and the accounting bodies. So measurability is pretty fundamental. I think the question of additionality is a sort of a slightly different one. You know, we take that within the development finance community, additionality is pretty fundamental in the sense that we're given capital by our donor governments. In CDC's case, it's the UK. And our our role is to do stuff that other people wouldn't do. Because if the commercial capital markets can take care of something, then there's no need for development finance. So every time we make an investment, we consider very carefully what the additionality requirements are. It's not quite the same thing for when you're investing, for example, in public equity. And actually, I don't think the same, you know, if I think about what I'd like to see big public investment managers and public funds do, it's, I think to ask them to be a thing too additionally would probably, would probably be a step <laughs> too far. I mean, I think what you do want them to do is to think about this impact question alongside risk and return question. And I think to a large extent, that's what we see these organizations beginning to do. Got it. I want to sort of go back because it was sort of interesting. In 2018, the CDC announced a new five-year strategy. It essentially commits to take on greater risk 
with lower return assumptions in order to, and I'm reading from the disclosures, to quote, tackle specific market failures that hold back development. How do you see this strategy now serving investment in a post-pandemic world? It feels like this is desperately needed in the current context in terms of providing liquidity and capital. Yeah, I th- the, the, the strategy that you're referring to is what we now call our catalyst strategy within CDC. So we have two portfolios broadly. We have um, the growth, what we call the growth portfolio, which is um, the largest part of our portfolio. That's more of a sort of a traditional DFI portfolio. The catalyst portfolio specifically was set up to allow us to take you know a higher level of risk to go places where we thought we could develop enhanced impact. And I do think, as I said before, in, the, in development finance institutions, our role really is to be additional. It is not to just do the things that other people would do, but it's really to try to stretch and be prepared to take greater risk and hopefully achieve greater impact and hopefully build markets. And what the Catalyst uh, portfolio has allowed us to do is things, for example, like we set up a company called MedAccess to develop the volume guarantee business. Volume guarantees were a technique originally developed by the Gates Foundation to help increase the supply of critical medical products and pharmaceuticals through guaranteeing demand effectively. So that was, uh, we were able to set up a business to try to develop that market. We were able to set up a business called Gridwork specifically to develop, to invest in transmission and distribution in Africa. In many countries in Africa today, there's still a critical shortage of reliable power, but it's actually not caused by generation. It's a lack of generation. It's caused by poor transmission and distribution of the power. That tends to be a very difficult area to invest in. So we wanted to set up a dedicated sort of a focused company to do that. And the catalyst gave us the ability to do that. It gave us, it gives us the ability to have a, a larger venture capital and a, and a riskier venture capital portfolio. It allows us, for example, also to invest in more in forestry, which is a critical part of our climate strategy. So it's given us the opportunity to go those places where capital really is absent and try to demonstrate that capital can play a role. It's interesting from a climate change perspective that in the midst of the pandemic, the CDC announced a number of climate actions mid last year, including achieving net zero emissions by 2050, alignment to the Paris Agreement, and in fact, a 30% of total investment devoted to climate finance in 2021. All of these would seem to effectively reposition CDC into essentially what is a, a green development finance institution. Uh, I'm wondering what are some observations and lessons about working with developing economies who just relative to developed economies will end up showing later peaks in emissions as many tend to focus on more urgent human development issues. Yeah, so I think CDC has always, certainly for a long time, been a sort of a green-focused investment firm. I mean, we gave up, we've had uh, insured strong environmental standards at all all our investing companies for many years. We gave up investing in coal, for example, coal-fired generation in 2014. But I think obviously, as the climate emergency has developed, we've had to become even more focused on that area. And so, as you say, we, we announced a new climate strategy about six months ago, which, which focused on getting to net zero by 2050, on addressing this question of adaptation and resilience, focusing on how we can make a difference in terms of just transition. But obviously, as you say, we need to do that in the context of being a development institution. So, you know, there are sales, there are still 600 million people in Africa today that do not have access to reliable power. 
And that means they obviously they can't light their homes at night. They can't charge their mobile phones, but they can't build hospitals or power hospitals. They can't build and power factories and create jobs. So this is a fundamental development issue. Africa today generates 2% of global emissions, of which I think about half is generated in South Africa. So this question of ending energy poverty has always been central to what CDC have focused on and indeed what other development finance institutions have focused on. I think what's changing, obviously, is we need to try to address that need for power in a green, environmentally friendly way. Now, that isn't as simple as saying we're never again going to develop, for example, gas-fired energy generation. One of the things that the Paris Agreement was quite clear on was there is a need for a transition in many countries to a purely green economy, and that's particularly true in Africa. So now we've obviously tightened up our exclusion. So we don't, as I say, invest in coal. We don't invest in oil-fired generation. But we will, for example, look at gas power generation if we feel it's part of a transition and a pathway in that country to net zero. I mean, if you were to look across the countries and uh, the investments from a CDC perspective, I mean, how much dispersion is there when you think about the portfolio emissions and individual country pathways towards net zero? There is a significant dispersion between different countries. Certainly, we invest, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, both in Africa and South Asia. Every country is in a slightly different position. And so when you evaluate, and that's why the, the Paris Agreement specifically allows for different national country plans and clearly defined pathways. So, for example, India is a very large economy with massive energy needs, but it, it, most of its energy today is provided by coal. So there's a huge need for transition out of coal into cleaner source of energy. So we're playing an important part in funding that renewable, those renewable platforms. We started a company called IANA about um, four or five years ago, which now has a billion dollars in capital and is building wind and solar power. So in India, we are focused only on wind and solar and renewables. In Africa, different countries, again, are in different circumstances, both in terms of their ability today to generate power, their ability to deliver that power to their populations, and also their access to um, fuel sources. So you have to look at each country separately. And there are significant differences between what you might do in Mozambique, for example, versus what you would do in Kenya. Hmm. There's been this historical concern that DFIs and even CDC, I, I've heard you talk about this in, in the past, are effectively too commercial. That you know the, the, the risk is that they generally crowd out private sector investment, given the scarcity of big bankable projects out there. And I'm wondering how you see that picture evolving as particularly CDC rebases its return assumptions. And to be honest, I'm wondering to what degree did the low rates environment that we've seen over the last couple of years, and particularly now, has it changed it pre-pandemic? And to what degree is it changing it in a post-pandemic world going forward? Yes, I think the development finance community has in the past definitely been accused of being uh, of being too commercial. And that gets back to our, our discussion on, on additionality and whether development finance is truly additional. I think when you look at the market today, you see, I always think people talk about too much capital or not enough capital. Really, you know, there's a spectrum of capital and a spectrum of risk. And what I think we often see is, a lot of capital chasing the lower, and this is true broadly, by the way, in the whole in the impact investment market as well. We see a lot of capital chasing 
lower risk transactions. So for example, if you're looking for US dollar debt for renewable energy in Africa today, there's a, potent, there's a lot of reasonable projects, there's a lot of capital available. On the other hand, if you look at equity to support venture capital and to support young local entrepreneurs to build you know, the digital business of the future, there's a dramatic scarcity of capital. So I think for DFIs, we need to continue to try to move towards that higher risk end in a sensible way, move in towards that higher risk end of the capital spectrum. So I think we have, as a group, been doing that. We also need to move towards the higher risk countries. I mean, it's in many countries in Southeast Asia, really, there's a very limited need for development capital, but still huge needs in Africa. So it's really moving. When you think about sort of these issues of crowding out and additionality, you need to think about it in the context of risk and where on the capital spectrum you're, you're trying to, what part of the capital spectrum you're trying to occupy. There was an announcement from the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance recently that that essentially issued a call to asset managers to uh, provide blended finance solutions that specifically align to uh, the net zero transition. And I think the CDC would seem to be sort of at that nexus of net zero in this area in finance. And I'm wondering how you're using blended finance, you know, as part of your overall toolkit and how you balance the commercial returns component within that, within the overall effort to take higher risks amid potentially lower returns. Mm. Well, blended finance has been one of the sort of important developments, I think, in in um, driving the impact investment movement, driving uh, development finance over almost a decade now. And it, it's very important. It continues to be more important. What's interesting is that originally the sources of, of blended finance, and when I say blended finance, I mean the concessionary part. Blended finance, by definition, is, you know, two or more participants coming together in, this, in one investment structure where they've got different risk return impact objectives so they can come together in one structure. So I think that a blended finance, originally the concessionary part, which is typically the most difficult piece to find, has been provided by governments and through programs. The EU have a big program. The World Bank has a big program. The Global Climate Fund has a big program. I think what's interesting about the uh, development finance world over the last two or three years is you're beginning to see the foundations, for example, play a much broader role in providing the concessionary piece of blended finance. And I think that's a very good, that's a very positive development. Indeed, before I came to CDC, I worked as a senior advisor to the Gates Foundation, specifically looking at, at how they could develop a bit more in the field of blended finance. So I think it tends to work best in areas where you've got sort of where you're funding coming together to fund projects where you've got predictable cash flows so it works well as you said in the world of renewables where many projects still are difficult to justify particularly in the more difficult countries difficult to justify on a purely commercial basis so having the additional blended finance component can be the difference between getting a project done or not uh, done or, or, or not done it can be valuable in providing guarantees for broad SME loan programs, for example, where you have fairly predictable loss ratios. And sometimes those loss ratios make the whole program 
perhaps commercially unattractive, but with the addition of blended finance, it can become more attractive to commercial investors. So it has a really important role to play. It's not a panacea for every problem. I mean, it is my one of my learnings at Gates Foundation was how complicated it is, how bespoke everything is, how we still are, lack standardization across much of blended finance. The amount of money moved has been probably less than some people would have. There've been some very interesting transactions, but probably the total amount of money has been let, moved has been less than perhaps some people would have hoped for. I think it doesn't work as well in areas like equity, sort of the higher risk, really unpredictable. We look at high, uh, high risk, unpredictable returns. Although we're begin- we are again beginning to see, you know, concessionary tranches in in some equity funds. So it's uh, you know, so it's definitely an important and growing part of the development and the impact agenda. And indeed, at CDC, we've done a number of different transactions, but in climate, in SME funding post pandemic, uh, where we've employed uh, blended finance to get those transactions actually over the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, within that CDC toolkit that I mentioned, another interesting announcement that came out was the expansion of CDC's venture cap program. And I'm wondering how you see technology and early stage innovative business models supporting the CDC's investment mandate. You know, is the focus on early stage a necessary step given the lack of a lot of large scale investment opportunities? I think that Supporting the digital revolution is an absolutely critical part of a development finance institution's job today. And I think that has not historically been the case for a couple of reasons, for a number of reasons. But today, because it's very obvious, it was obvious, obviously, before the pandemic, it's even more obvious post-pandemic, that building the digital economy is fundamental to development in every country in the world. And I think development finance institutions have a critical role to play. And it's not necessarily an area where DFIs have been necessarily comfortable. I mean, they've been much more visible, for example, in in large infrastructure projects or in providing funding for financial systems and financial inclusion. But in funding the digital revolution, I think we have two really important roles. And there's sort of two ends of a barbell. You know, on the one side, we need to fund the digital, the hugely expensive digital infrastructure that needs to be built so that people can get reliable high-speed internet access. And so CDC, for example, two years ago, invested $200 million in a company called Liquid Telecom. Liquid is building a fiber platform across Africa from Cairo to Cape Town and Mombasa to Dhaka. So that vision of a connected Africa is going to require massive amounts of capital and is going to require companies that are African, based in Africa, focused on Africa, like Liquid, to do it. So getting for them to raise equity is difficult to do. DFI have critical roles to play. And, you know, that certainly was a large investment by CDC. It was on our overall risk spectrum, one of the riskier things we've done, but we felt it was really important to do it because without that digital infrastructure development in Africa was going to be significantly slower. So that's one part of it. The other end of the barbell is about how do you support How do we find the capital to support the young local entrepreneurs that are using digital technology to build the businesses of the future? 
One of the upcoming guests is going to be Dambisa Moyo, who's been a big influence on me, particularly in the development area. She's clearly a big proponent in terms of private sector versus uh, the aid strategy. But I guess I'm wondering, when you think about the CDC's position and role within Sub-Saharan Africa, the fact that it feels like we're kind of in the midst of a potential credit crisis, particularly going through the pandemic, debt to GDP ratios are climbing. We've even seen the first formal sovereign credit defaults happen. I mean, how is CDC thinking about all of these factors in the context of greater risk-taking? Yeah, so I think one of the things that was very clear when we went into the pandemic a year or so ago was that, first of all, what, what always happens in any global financial crisis of any sort is people's natural reaction, investors' natural reaction, is to take risk off. And that means they they take money out of those places that are furthest away that they perceive to be higher, highest risk. Africa is a continent where the majority of countries, certainly outside of South Africa, don't have deep capital markets, domestic capital markets. So they've nothing to replace that with. And so you get this big sort of sucking out of, of, of funding. And that's exactly what's happened when the pandemic started. And the role of, and that, of course, is accentuated by the fact that unlike developed countries where we have deep pockets in government that, you know, in the UK, for example, where we can step up and provide emergency funding to companies to get them through, get them through the pandemic. In most African countries, they don't have that funding. They're over indebted going into the crisis. So it's absolutely vital that the development finance community steps forward at a time like this, acts in a counter-cyclical way. And that's what we tried to do. And I know other organizations, IFC and others, all tried to step in, fill that gap that was that was created at the start of the pandemic. Last question. What are your expectations going into COP26 later this year in terms of the development agenda? What are you seeing on the ground from developing economies around climate commitment and action? Yeah. COP26 is critically important. It's obviously also critically important for us because it's taking place in the UK. And there's a whole, obviously a huge agenda around COP, of which the financing capital piece, which is the piece that we're involved in, is just one part. But I think you know, on the broader big picture, it's obviously huge, critically important that we get commitments to more urgent action on climate change. I think when you start looking at the opportunity for the UK to play a really important role, I think it's in areas like carbon offset trading, for example, where there's a real, that's a very, has been a very embryonic sort of illiquid market. I think we need to institutionalize that market. So that's a big work stream within the UK. Um, but I think for the development finance community, it's about making sure that we do deploy our capital in a way that's really additional. And as I said earlier, that's still around climate mitigation. So it's still around providing the vast amount of capital to build more renewable energy. But it's also importantly around pushing out into adaptation and resilience, focusing more on the um, just transition. Uh, so our role is to try to bring together as much as possible the development finance community, the, the multilateral development community, to try and really focus on, as I say, pushing a bit further, taking a little bit more risk, looking at the areas where perhaps that are less um, attractive to commercial capital. But it's a huge overall, I mean, it will be a hugely important event, I think, obviously for the UK, but for the whole world if we're really going to bring the sort of urgent attention and action to the climate emergency, then COP26 has to be a key catalyst in doing that. 
That's great to hear. I mean, there are high expectations, so it's a really, really hopeful uh, message. So it's been fascinating to discuss how the CDC group is positioning itself as the UK's green development finance institution, what DFIs are doing to provide much needed liquidity and capital during the pandemic, and why investor action on climate and the SDGs is vital to advance the development agenda. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights today. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group here today with Nick O'Donohoe, CEO of CDC Group. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Nick. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Great to talk to you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast. Or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.